Okay, real talk. When did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Like, say I want to see what you're doing and who you're hanging with, and you're not posting about it on your story. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. Oh, yeah, that's weird. You do that? No, I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends, and then use that money to buy something at a store with Apple Pay. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, Elizabeth Dutton. Yes, Saren. You know what's ridiculous? Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous that the first person convicted of speeding was only going eight miles an hour. <laughs> and he got chased down by a cop on a bicycle. <laughs> it's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Yeah. I like that one. Thank it's you. It's a good one. Nice one. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I got one for you. Yes. Okay, this one's the story of a con man who transformed kids' letters to Santa Claus into a well-paying grift. Oh, I like that. Right? This dude was a showboat. He was like a P.T. Barnum of the Jazz Age, known for his ability to spin hype into reality. As well, he was also a gentleman who was known for his voluminous and well-kept mustache. Oh. Yeah, because you know a good mustache can take you far in life. It really can. Just I've proven that. Constantly, daily, <laughs> every day. You, it's pretty much you, Tom Selleck, Sam Elliott. Yeah. Clark Gable. These are the people I think mm-hmm. of. It's like mm-hmm. mustache made them. Raleigh Fingers. Oh, that's a solid Deep one. Deep pull. All right. So you ready for the story of the con man who helped make Christmas what it is today? Yes, I am. This is Ridiculous Crime, a podcast about absurd and outrageous capers, heists, and cons. It's always 99% murder-free and 100% ridiculous. Hey, Elizabeth. Hey, Zaren. I want to tell you the story of a man named John Duval Gluck. Okay. He's the ant- hero of our little tale of morality for today. Now, if you hear that name, like me, do you think Gluck? What is that? Is there an umlaut over the nope. U? Nope. Hmm. It's not gluck, it's gluck. Mm. Yeah, it's a verb, turns out. Oh, really? It actually is a word, because I looked it up. It means to flow or to cause to flow in a noisy series of spurts, as when liquid is emptied through the narrow neck of a bottle. Gluck, 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 Oh, gluck, really? Gluck. Yeah. I would always think that would be glug. I know, that's how everybody spells it. So I was oh. like kind of surprised. It's gluck, gluck, gluck. Gluck, yeah. So okay. Anyway. So that's our dude, John Duvall. Gluck, gluck, gluck. All right. <laughs> he stood five foot six. He was the shortest, the oldest, and the baldest of the five Gluck brothers. Okay. He was compensating for this with the aforementioned voluminous mustache. Ah. But this was also because he was a con man who liked to cut an impressive worldly figure. Sure. Did he wear lifts? 
I don't know about that. Yeah, that was maybe. not anything Who that knows? I read about him. But this dude was about as American as they come, right? So he'd grown up in Bedford-Stuyvesant, the Brooklyn neighborhood, back mm-hmm. when it was like, you know, a quaint little towny type. Uh, district. Mm-hmm. And then he moved over to Westfield, New Jersey. And I don't know if you're familiar with Westfield, New Jersey, but I think it's most famous for its export of shopping complexes. Okay. The Westfield Mall. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I have oh. no idea. But I, I do like, think that maybe the they're from there. I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. They are now. So the Westfield Mall. Do you like how, how I got kind of excited about that? And I don't go to malls. <laughs> you don't go to malls at all. Yeah. Like I, I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've been to a mall. Yeah. Now the Beverly Center, that's naturally occurring. Yeah, that came out of the ground. Yeah, you can't export that. Right. So, okay, that's where a dude grew up, right? So, like, in this very charming, early, like, late 19th century, like, picturesque, you know, small house, uh, like, I don't know how to best describe it, you know, home hearth, that whole thing that Mm -hmm. you'd see, like, in Norman Rockwell paintings. That's Mm -hmm. basically his childhood. Now, also, they were not in any way um, economically stressed. This was a family that had abundance. They would give generously at Christmas, which was also something that stuck with him other than the whole like feeling of comfort and joy in his family home was also the sense of we should extend to others the abundance that we have. So they were just a straightforward... American dream family. Pretty much, pretty much. Like good... his blood was just apple pie filling and his dad was a bald eagle. Yes, <laughs> his mama was the theme song to a baseball game. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> so this family, right, they uh, managed to push out into the world John Duvall Gluck fully formed. <laughs> and uh, he ends up getting married once. He divorces and spends the rest of his life as a bachelor. Okay. Now, he takes over the family business, his dad's business, which was a custom brokerage. So, he basically just does paperwork for international shipping, Mm. right? So, that's what the eldest of the five Gluck brothers does is take over the family business. But it's not well suited to John Duvall Gluck. So, by age 35, he's like, you know what? I need to switch careers. So, he starts becoming a press agent. He's no. like, I'm going to sell hype to suckers. That's what some I can do. <laughs> so, so he it just was his calling. Yeah, he found himself by around age 35. Yeah. So he decides, like, you know what? This hype man thing is, this is good for me. And then as he realizes that, he's like, you know what? I think I should become Santa Claus. Well, that's the logical next right? step. It's just like left foot, right foot. Right. <laughs> but, now, did you ever write a letter to Santa Claus? Uh, yeah. Is that something your family did? Yeah, I guess, yeah. Did you, did you do like the whole like cookies and milk and leave oh, it out? Oh, yeah, totally. And did you did you think about your letter and like, did you also think about the letter you would write before you wrote it? So like, you know, in September, you're like, oh, I got to be good. Santa's probably Oh, yeah, watching. you're like already clocking what you want for mm-hmm. Christmas and then you're sort of phrasing like, I would think like, I have to kiss up to Santa in this letter, but I don't want to be obvious about it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, Santa, you know, how's Mrs. Claus, you know? <laughs> How's the wife and family? Trying to, like, pick up the conversation where it left off last year. Because <laughs> you're a pen pal with Santa Claus. You know what's messed up? When I was in third grade, they hmm. had us answer kindergartner's Christmas letters to okay. Santa. Uh-huh. Third grade. Yeah. And, like, I got one where the kid said he wanted Castle Graskel, which is, I guess, the Castle Grayskull. <laughs> yes. But we, I forever called it Castle Graskel, <laughs> mocking a kindergartner. <laughs> and then in my scrawl, being like, sorry, sucker, no Castle Graskel for you until you learn to spell. <laughs> Enjoy the coal. Maybe we're worried about crossing them T's, dotting them I's, son. No, you know me. I was like, of course you can have that. I'm Santa. <laughs> so you've been Santa too then. Oh, yeah, totally. Then I think you'll understand this story a little bit more deeply than I do. I always do. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so the, the whole like thing about the Santa letter, ultimately, is it's kind of for parents in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. It's a behavior modifier, right? They're like, oh, you know, they, you know, they, they know that the kid knows they're going to eventually plead their case in this letter to Santa Claus. So it's always like, you know, he's watching you all year long. You got to be smart about this. Act right. Well, and it makes the con of Santa more real. If you have to write to Santa, if you were just talking about Santa and it comes, but you know, you got to set cookies and milk out. Oh, yeah. And then the parents got to Drink the milk and eat the cookies. And so leave there's... a couple bites because it's like, you know, Santa's on a diet. Yeah. He's like, I get so many cookies tonight. I just, <laughs> just one for the taste. So this letter to Santa, like, tradition, it basically kind of starts in the 19th century, at least in America. Mm-hmm. That's like when we get into it. Uh, for instance, I found in the early 1800s, uh, Fanny Longfellow, who Ooh. was the wife of the poet Henry Wadsworth. Okay. Uh, she would write letters to children from Santa Claus. I, was, I thought you were going to say she wrote letters to Santa. And I was like, oh, <laughs> precious little Girl, thing. <laughs> yeah. You trying to get the vote from Santa Claus? 
Sorry, that's so bleak. <laughs> okay, so in one letter from 1851, Fanny Longfellow writes, uh, as Santa, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I sometimes hear you are not so kind to your little brother as I wish you were. Ooh, see? I, right? Yeah. That's the use of Santa I know. Right, right? I you're know not getting Castle Graskell. Yeah, it's all guilt and shame. That's what Santa was in the letters. That's how That's how you raise children right. Yeah, exactly. Guilt and shame. Spare the rod. <laughs> so... <laughs> Mostly my point is that basically there's nothing new under the sun. Parents are using Santa today the same way. Elf on the shelf is just what Fanny Longfellow was doing, right? Early surveillance state. Yeah. So this thing about, you know, another aspect about a letter to Santa that I find interesting is it's a chance for children to get a voice. As I said earlier, they're going to plead their case, but also it's their ability to talk directly to Santa and be like, look, I don't know what the parents told you, and I don't know what my siblings are going to tell you, but here's what I think, right? So it gives them a little bit of agency. Yeah. So you can see how everybody gets something out of the letter from Santa, essentially, right? Right. Con man understands this, too. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Okay. So you're starting to see where I'm going with this. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So back then— in the 19th century, throughout the mid-19th century, it becomes more popular. By 1870s, it's really something people expect to do. Now most families are taking time to write letters to Santa, and some of them are starting to mail them to the North Pole mm. or to work, to Santa's house, right? right? So they send them into the mail, and these post offices around the country— Every Christmas, they're starting to get inundated with these letters that they can't deliver. So they just put them in the like, dead letter office and then... Burn them. No, then come New Year's, they have to do exactly that. <gasps> That's like is, their New Year's bonfire which is Which is kind of depressing, is burning all these kids' letters to Santa Claus. All their, like, open belief. You know just, that like, they're just chuckling while they throw them into the Throw fire. another batch on, Steve. That's how you figure out who's the, the biggest... Uh, threat in the post office. Who volunteers to do that? <laughs> enjoys That's it. who you got to keep your eye on. Oh, I'll burn them this year. Yeah, all right. You burned them last year, Fletcher. <laughs> Fletcher. So in New York, the postmaster in the city gets this idea. He's like, you know what? Well, I shouldn't say he gets this idea. He's guilted into this idea by the locals and the press. They keep saying, why won't someone do something with these letters? Why are you people burning them? What's wrong with you sickos at the post office? Guilt like, and shame. I'm telling you, just constant is. spiral, right? So the idea is someone should be answering these kids' letters. And so people are like, well, okay. Postmaster's like, okay, fine. We'll stop burning the kids' letters. <laughs> so then he's like, okay. Here's my idea. And he puts out, this is like, you know, 1910. He puts out a, a, a request. He says, to any charity organizations that can answer the kids' letters to Santa Claus, please contact the post office. Now, how many charity organizations do you think contacted the postmaster general doing offering free labor? I don't know. But zero. I'll zero. just tell you right now, zero. <laughs> I just keep thinking about like the kid that knows how to read that yeah. still believes in Santa because Santa's real. And everybody. they're going to see that. Yeah. In the they're newspaper. They're going to read it. The people are like, wait, what in the. <laughs> they're telling, advocating lying to us? And the kid just like stubs out his cigarette and slant, like <laughs> goes back to work. The paper and storms out of the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> goes the back times to the were different shift. back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. The postmaster keeps trying this. Year after year, he's like, oh, anyone want to help me answer these letters? People are like, oh, yeah, great idea. You should do something about that. No one's doing it, right? Yeah. Finally, 1913 rolls around. Postmaster General's pretty much getting tired of asking every year for this thing he's been guilted into doing. So it's like not even his bag. He doesn't really feel anything strong about it. But he's like, okay, look, I'm going to ask again. Any charity organizations? Anybody want to write some letters to these kids you're so worried about? And everyone's like... Um, yeah, crickets. So then, out of this mute crowd steps our hero, or rather our anti-hero, John Duvall Gluck. Yes, He's gluck like, it up. What the gluck is going on? <laughs> Y'all need a Santa? I got you, son. And they're like, oh. Ho, oh. ho, ho. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So gluck's like, you know, I'm about this life, son. I, I like the Santa. It, the shoes fit, so does the jacket. <laughs> and I'm into facial hair. So they're like, all right, man, you can do this. And he's like, okay, bet. Now... To him, he sees an opportunity. That's what he sees in all this. Right. Because he knows, like, you know, Santa, he isn't just an elf on the shelf for these parents, and he isn't just a, a stick and a carrot for the kids. This is opportunity. This is trust. Oh, yeah. And you know what that means. Yeah. He starts the Santa Claus Association. He's like, <laughs> all right, we're going to do this. He names himself General Secretary. To I want you to have a better grasp of this cat, so... Picture this man who founded the Santa Claus Association. We're going to pop back in his life just before he started his Christmas long con. Okay. Right? Because I told you at 35, he decides he's going to change careers. And he doesn't have any kids, right? No kids. Okay. All right. So the date is September 10th, 1913. That was the day when John Duvall Gluck was arrested for promoting an illegal bullfight on Coney Island. (laughs) 
wait, what? Okay, I want you to picture it. Oh, yeah, I will. We're at Steeplechase Park in Coney Island. We're walking through the first theme park constructed there. Popcorn, kettle corn, saltwater taffy and cotton candy, and the meaty aroma of this new invention called a hot dog. They're all swirling in the air, fighting for the attention of your nose, right? There's the sound of the crowd and all sorts of carousel music filling the air as well. Families, joyful kids, moon-eyed teens, they're all around you everywhere you look, dressed in their best dark wool suits and floor-length ankle-obscuring skirts. Right? I'm loving this, by the way. <laughs> okay, so the people are enjoying these... Newfangled hot dogs. <laughs> these newfangled hot dogs and these several carousels on offer. There's also a giant Ferris wheel. There's something called the Pavilion of Fun. It has new rides like the Human Wheel or Human Niagara or the Grinder or the Mixer. Or the Sticky Bench. Yeah, right? So there's also airships above you, zeppelins, an automobile ride stretching around, a lazy Venetian gondola. This is all in the area right near something called the Palace of Pleasure. You spot a sunken garden. Beyond it is a ballroom. You also notice spread throughout this parkus circus-style sideshows with body, freakish attractions, and people are going, oh, check out the bearded lady, right? And you're like, this is wild. There's this place 20, is popping off. 25 attractions, not mentioning the sideshows, okay? There's also something called the world's largest swimming pool. They're inside the it's world's the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the world's largest swimming pool is where the bullfight will be held. They've drained it for this special occasion and filled oh, it with dirt. No. They've then also yeah. So as you you and uh, some other crowd are gathering outside and you see this press agent for the bullfight, John Duval Gluck, push through the crowd. And there's that sumptuous, lustrous mustache that you're like, that's my man, John Gluck. <laughs> now, Gluck is complaining just to himself, just you know, out loud to, to nobody in, in particular, that the SBCA is just on him. And the reason why is the SBCA has vowed to prevent this bullfight. They're like, we are the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. We do not believe in what it is you are trying to do with these people, even though you call it a exhibition. Yeah. He's like, yeah, that's not a bullfight, it's an exhibition. And he's like, yeah, but you guys, you brought over a Spaniard to kill bulls. And he's like, yeah, I know, I know. Don't worry about that. So they're like, all right, we'll give you one chance. So he's like, I promise no harm will come to the bull. That would be wrong. And they're like, okay. <laughs> so then the ring announcer steps out into this dirt and he's like, want to you to introduce you to the pleasure of the Spanish, the, the, the treasure of Mexico. And they introduce this bullfighter, Matador, and he comes out and he's got the picadors with him, the toreadors, cowboys. He's got like a 40 person entourage. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. And he's wearing like the full on Matador silk. The little tiny jacket. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. He's got the little ponytail, the whole Cute. bit, right? Now, when he's sitting there in the world's largest swimming pool, there is a fence, right, for the bull ring. And mm -hmm. so this fence is there and there's a bull in there with him. And so the Matador and the bull are in this bull ring. The Matador and the bull, they stare at each other. They face each other down, right? The, all the various picadors, toreadors, cowboys, the 700 spectators are all watching this moment. Bull, eyes, matador. Bullfighter, eyes, bull. Suddenly, the bull charges. The matador doesn't expect this, by the way. He's not expecting the bull to charge it because he has the, the picadors and the toreadors to like kind of get the bull excited and do all the stuff he plans on doing. This is uh, off script. The bull is basically oh, improv. Come so on now. The bull charges him. He's like, whoa! And he basically does this graceful sidestep. Mm -hmm. The bull, in its like, you know, blind fury, runs right past the matador and runs into the fence and knocks himself sick. Aww. Yeah, I know. It's what did they expect him to do? Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, so the bull then. <laughs> He slumps to the dirt, lights out, right? No. And then, yeah, I know. It's the three veterinarians who were brought there by the SPCA, they pop up, they're like, we knew it! And they go rushing yeah. out to the middle of the dirt, and they inspect, and they're like, we're looking for signs of torture, because this would make the bullfight illegal. It would make it a bullfight instead of an exhibition. So right. the bull's nose is indeed bloody, which qualifies as animal cruelty under the law. And so they say, no, two laws have been broken animal baiting, and animal cruelty. The superintendent, Thomas Friel, is like, arrest all who are connected with the bullfight or exhibition, right? So the matador, Enrique Robles, he bolts. He mm -hmm. says, I'm out, son. And he <laughs> runs for it. Somehow he escapes the world's largest swimming pool dressed in, like, china flats. And he gets away. The press agent, John D. Gluck, along with the show's promoter, the announcer, two cowboys, six picadors, they're all caught and arrested, mm -hmm. right? They take him down to the Coney Island police station, 
And then, you know, they just do some charges. They release him. A month later, John Duvall Gluck has to go to court, October 3rd, 1913. And he, that's the last we hear of the charges. Just nothing occurs. He's arraigned and just somehow nothing occurs after that in the newspaper that I could find. Just disappears. Well. Then this is the last we ever hear of the bullfight as well, which people have been writing about for months. They've yeah. been writing throughout the summer about this. Everyone had been in anticipation. And then a month afterwards, everyone just pretends like it never happened. But this is not the last we hear of my man, John Duvall Gluck, obviously. Right. Because you see, in 1913, after this failed bullfight, that's when he decides to become Santa Claus. Huh. And I'll tell you all about that right after this break. rant for a sec please pay apps are way too public what happened some rando hearted a payment from five months ago and i realized people can see my entire history who i'm paying like full names it's super weird yeah it's weird how are you paying your friends then apple cash it's all in messages you can literally send cash like a text and it stays between friends random people can't see it did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. As you know, the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every crime I've studied, I've learned one thing. Your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation. You don't want to worry. You just want peace of mind. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. For every ridiculous robbery and theft we talk about, it's pretty obvious the crimes could be avoided with a solid security system. A good home security system keeps people prepared and aware. Simply Safe is that system. It was named Best Home Security Systems 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. And it doesn't just protect your home from crime, it also alerts you to fire, floods, and other emergencies. They offer sensors and cameras backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. There are no contracts, and there's a 60-day money-back guarantee. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash ridiculous crime. That's simplysafe.com slash ridiculous crime. There's no safe like Simply Safe. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Elizabeth, we are in December 6th, 1913 now. Okay. You with me? I am. Okay. John Duvall Gluck shows up in the New York newspapers again. 
Hi. <laughs> What's up, Johnny? So this time, this is two months after he was arraigned for the bullfight in the world's largest swimming pool in Coney Island. And nothing came of and it. And nothing came of it. And now he reappears on the New York scene as a charitable benefactor. Hmm. Yeah, right? The first mention of his new long con shows up in print December 6, 1913. And I quote. Yes. The Santa Claus Association to operate as a national organization in ministering to the pleas of poor children who write to St. Nicholas for gifts was formed here tonight with several hundred members, Dr. William Edward Fitch, John D. Gluck, and Countess Grace Sterling Mankowski were among the organizers here tonight. Hmm. You kind of get the tone that he was putting on? Yeah. All right. So Gluck had found the perfect place for his talents and hype and his love of a good show, the world of rich people and their charities. Yeah. He's like, these people are suckers born ready for me. Throw in some poor kids? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So by the end of the year, the newly formed Santa Claus Association is fully operational. Okay. So John Gluck, on Christmas Day of that year, 1913, the Santa Claus Association gets its first big write-up in the New York press. They already notice what he's doing. Because everyone has been, remember, waiting for these letters to be answered. But he goes above and beyond. Mm -hmm. I will give you a sample of what it is he does. You ready? Yes. I'm going to read you a little short selection from the news story on that Christmas day. Quote, A taxi cab filled with Christmas packages rolled up in front of a five-story tenement at 301 East 64th Street late Saturday afternoon, and a young woman who was almost obscured by the parcels stepped to the sidewalk. She took one of the packages from the taxi cab, and much to the surprise of a steadily increasing crowd of children with soiled faces and soiled clothes, went to the door of the tenement and pulled the knob of the bell. The young woman was about to enter the darkened hallway when one of the little girls in the crowd of children who lived there pressed close to her side and asked, Who do you want to see here, miss? (laughs) Now, so this unnamed woman arrives at a tenement to bring a package to a kid. And the kid's name is Alfred Briggs, right? It doesn't Uh really matter, but the kid's name is Alfred Briggs. She inquires, where does Alfred live? She's like, oh, he lives up on the whatever floor, right? And she's like, oh, okay. So the woman goes into the building, gift in hand, and I quote, Here's a package of Christmas things that Santa has sent to Alfred, explained the young woman. Santa Claus received Alfred's letter, and when he learned that the little boy was so modest in his wishes, he decided to be very generous with Alfred. So the little girl's like, cool, lady. Upstairs, I told you, fourth floor. She's like, okay. She'd be like, I'm Alfred. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Alfie, it's a girl's name. So so hearing this from the nice lady with a gift from Santa Claus, the nine-year-old boy, Alfred, he's like, you know, comes out into the hallway, and he's like, you have a gift for me? And she... And I quote, she handed the lad the package on which was a red seal with his name and address written before the words, from Santa Claus, comma, North Pole. Below the name of the youngster was the name of the Santa Claus branch office in this city, Santa Claus Association, 58 West 36th Street, New York, New York, John D. Gluck, Secretary. Oh, he puts his name on the... Oh, yeah. He's like, I want credit for this. But you understand the subtle power of labels and stationery and thank you notes and gift cards. Mm -hmm. It's not much, but you do it earnestly. Uh But there is a power there of like someone seeing their name printed out, not in handwriting. Like you took the time to use a printer for this. They're like, oh, it's the thought, you know, that counts. Yeah, totally. Now you do thank you notes. Am I wrong about this? Oh, I totally do. Now, I mean, I know you totally do, but I mean, like, is that the appeal? Do you know that, what is it about the thank you note that you think other people respond to? Well, I think that if someone's going to take the effort to give you something, mm-hmm. I have to reciprocate some effort to show how much I appreciate it, particularly if they're not there with me. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I usually like pretty lightning quickly pull out my thank you note cards and, you know, you write something personal in there and... You know, you have an effect yeah. emotionally in registers. Well, yeah. Gluck kind of does that on the opposite end. He's like, you're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, and it's exactly... <laughs> So this uh, Santa Claus is his Santa Claus Association now is fully operational. He's kicking his first year, big success. Newspaper wrote about him. So he's like, oh, now I seem to go down, get approval from the post office. He goes to the postmaster. He says, hey, let's make this official. Postmaster's like, I would love to do that. Yeah, finally, <laughs> so, someone's just stepping up. Exactly. He's like, oh, man, I'm not going to get any more like angry letters from the New York Times. Thanks. That'd be great. So, Well, and then Gluck has like, I think the thing with the package is that it's one thing if he were handing stuff to kids and it was just a generic from Santa and mm-hmm. it could have been anything but the yeah like you were saying the printed name on there mm-hmm. it's personalized it's, yeah, even whole, like, if it's really not but yeah, yeah but it feels that way it seems mm-hmm. to be a little extra so Gluck starts basically putting a lot of those extra touches into everything he does yeah. right and meanwhile I told you he, he was on 36th street do you remember the address 
No. Okay, well, the address I'd read on for Alfred, it was on 36th Street. Right, Doesn't okay. matter. That place was called Henkel's Chop Shop. Oh, and hey. And Santa Claus Association was in the back room of Henkel's Chop Shop. I think it was a butcher. I don't think it was, was like an actual, like, cutting up cars. No. <laughs> It's just, they're really honest on the sign. Yeah, exactly. Illegal was, chop shop. <laughs> 50% off. <laughs> so this Santa Claus Association, as I said, it becomes a huge hit. The press likes it. They start basically sending reporters there. Or reporters send themselves there for a feel-good story because they mm-hmm. know they can just write something up. One of these reporters, her name is Zoe Beckley from the Evening Mail, the mm-hmm. New York paper back then. She would often stop by the Santa Claus Association. She finds this guy charming. So she is like, you know, kind of winning over his trust interview by interview. Eventually, she starts talking to him, and one day, he, he makes some time for her. And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, he tells her, oh, I'm just a simple man. I was, I'm a childless man. It may seem weird. That, yeah. Like, I want to do this <laughs> stuff for kids, but I live for the joy of children on Christmas Day. And she's like, hmm, a little suspicious like you are. And he's yeah. like, you have to understand, I was born on Christmas Day. Oh, well, so he happy feels birthday. Like, <laughs> he feels like it's a special thing that he's like, not that he is Santa, but he gets the vibe sure, of like, yeah. you know, this is a special thing. And also, I think maybe he's kind of indicating like, I know it's like to be skipped over on Christmas Day. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. He doesn't say that. I'm just guessing. Yeah, maybe. but everyone I know who's been born on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's for kids, too. It's really hard. Yeah, it's like you don't get a birthday. No, you have just one present and no party. And yeah, nobody wants to do anything for your birthday party. Yeah. Right. So... Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. But he mentions it to her. It moves her, right? So they start speaking. And she's like, hey, uh, the, what are the kids putting these letters to Santa Claus? He's like, oh, it's great. You know, normally they so they're filthy. <laughs> dirty mouth little brats. <laughs> I was like, sometimes they put in requests for a doll, a jack-in-the-box, uh, maybe a sled, a wagon. You know, they, they, the things you would expect of a child. She's like, oh, that's so sweet. And he's like, but you'd be surprised. Most of the requests are really modest. And she's like, oh, well, you know. Poor kids. They've, yeah. you know, they've adjusted their expectations for the world. So I, I as a reporter, get that. So these two are kind of like bonding as like mm-hmm. worldly souls, right? Now, Gluck, he mentions how the kids in their letters, they don't all agree on where Santa Claus lives. Oh. They're all sending these letters to random places, oh, right? I thought it was just like the North Pole, right? I, that's what I thought too, right? But yeah. Gluck lets us know that some of the kids are writing letters to Dear Santa at Cloudville. Other Aww. kids are like Dear Santa at Behind the Moon. Another one is, Why is that so Santa sweet? Claus, uh, uh, such and such, Ice Street, right? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd like these. I do like that. <laughs> so, like, I mean, how great are those places for kids? Like, behind the moon? The behind the moon yeah. is so charming. Because I know that they're probably thinking in the iconography of Santa Claus that he's flying in the sky with the reindeer, and mm-hmm. there's usually the moon as, like, a yeah, and back decorative then, element. And it was it. much more, I think, of a connection before electric lights. I think the moon held more sway with people. It, now, is this... Around the time of the, we have Santa Claus because of the Coca-Cola Santa Claus. Well, I was just about to tell you about well, that. Well, I'll let you go to get to it then. Well, this is basically, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, you know about the mythology and the progression from jolly old elf into right. red and white guy that we think of, right? Yeah. It basically comes down to, there was A Night Before Christmas, that's the book by Clement Moore, then there were the drawings of Santa by Thomas Nast, uh, the cartoonist, then there was obviously what you mentioned, the Coca-Cola, which is where we get the red and white, because mm-hmm. before that, oftentimes you'd see Santa Claus dressed in green. Camouflage. And often camouflage, you know, ready, toting the that AR. pink camouflage. Like, so you gotta keep these reindeer in line. <laughs> Yeah, a stubborn, stubborn animal. He had like a, a knife strapped to his thigh. Yeah, like a Rambo knife. Yeah. Just like, Ugh. Face paint. <laughs> Santa, calm Santa, down. You need to chill, Santa. I know the Crimean War was hard on you. <laughs> so, anyway. It was hard on all of us. Come on. <laughs> Alongside these uh, original, I'd say canonical texts, if you will, for Santa Claus, there's also something called Santa Claus and His Work written by George Webster. Uh That was the poem where it introduced the idea that he lives in the North Pole. So it originally was more of a poem line, so that's why a lot of the kids didn't know. It became more known in the 20th century thanks to radio, TV, and the ability to broadcast the same thing. So they all hear the same story at that point, right? So there was also Lil's Travels in Santa Claus Land, which introduced the idea of Mrs. Claus. Oh. Who you mentioned earlier. She was not like originally part of the story, but she was. Her original role, at least in Lil's Travels in Santa Claus Land, was she was supposed to keep the lists of kids who were naughty and hid kids who were nice. Oh. Yeah, she was the original like shame game. <laughs> so did you also, by the way, Miss Claus has a first name? What's her first name? Canonically speaking, this is based on the Rankin Bass Christmas specials. There were TV specials like in the 60s and 70s. They gave her name one time, or at least that I found, and her name was Jessica. Jessica Claus. 
Jessica, I was, <laughs> Why is I was, that hilarious? Jessica Jessica, Claus. It's like Jessica Rabbit. This, yeah, see, I was thinking, yeah, that was my first thought was Jessica Rabbit and then also um, Jessica from Murder, She Wrote. Jessica Fletcher. Oh, Jessica, I wanted her name to be Regina. Oh, yeah. Oh, Regina Claus. Yeah, come on now. Regina Claus. Regina Claus. <laughs> so as I was saying, the jolly old elf story and the mall Santa, there's a bit of a gap between how do we get between jolly old elf yeah. to mall Santa, right? Well, that uh, That's kinda, when we all just blacked out. Yeah, exactly. That's when we were all drinking deep in our cups. <laughs> we came to. So this dates back to around the same time, 1897, so slightly before where we are in 1913, which mm-hmm. was eight-year-old Virginia O'Hanlon wrote to the Sun, the New York Sun newspaper, Dear Editor, I am eight years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it is so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Aha, I know what this is. And the son wrote back with his very famous reply, Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Now, that letter would become obviously the basis of Miracle on 34th Street mm-hmm. and a bunch of like mythology around Santa Claus, which ultimately turns into Macy's Santa and the mall Santas. And all of this energy is really getting kicked off by the popularity of the letter writing campaigns of John Gluck. Like, New York is so tied to the history of Santa Claus. I had no idea until I started doing research for this. Yeah, yeah. Like, the Macy's Day Parade, which is on Thanksgiving now, was originally a Christmas parade Day Parade. The first mall Santa, uh, Ma- Macy's. Like, all this stuff in New yeah, York. Yeah, yeah. Nast is a cartoonist in New York. So, all these the New York energy is pretty much giving life to, and also the, the New England energy as well. But the New York energy right. is where it really starts to take off because that's where publishing is and so forth. Yeah, right? that so, makes sense. That makes so anyway, sense. Anyway, Gluck is like, okay. He's riding the, the spirit of the times. He's taking this zeitgeist and saying, I can earn some bucks off this, right? So he does his due diligence that he did back at the custom house, and he creates a system for his letters to San- or letters from Santa Claus, rather. Each letter is supposed to be read by a team of volunteers. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he's got the free labor. He's like, volunteers. <laughs> right. That's, that's <laughs> the like, key. All right. Now, the letters, I want you all to check them for names, addresses. We've got to make sure no kids are sending in the same letter mm. two, three times. Because mm. he's suspicious. He's a con man. Right. So he's like, I'm only one cheater in this game, kids. <laughs> now, Gluck is also a little tenderhearted because he notices that some of these kids are writing in with these sad stories about being unhoused or being abused or beaten or like uh, malnourished. Yeah. And he sends those letters to social workers for further investigation. Oh, good so for him. So he's not just purely, you know, Yeah, that's a the right man. thing to do. Now, now, is he running their parents' tax returns to find out if they really are in need? Or is it just like a I don't think he could bunch do that. of snotty kids? Now, Gluck estimates they're, they're pretty successful and they respond to about 70% of the letters they received. Wow. Yeah. Now, the first year, 1913, the number of letters they received was 13,160. That's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. It jumps within two years to 50,000 letters. Get out of here. Yeah. And this is just in New York. And he starts making this a national association, remember? Wow. So he starts going, oh, hey, you guys can like, get your own Santa Claus associations going. But just franchise me, okay? Yeah, right. <laughs> so the, now the newspapers are eating up these stories. They love all these stories about the kids and, like, this benevolent charity. And who can blame them? We all love a story where kids are having the, you know, the... The mean aspects of life minimized for them. Yeah, of course. Right? So everyone's just, they're loving this John Duvall Gluck. So what does he do? I don't know what he does. He's got the spirit of the people in his hand. He's a con man. He goes for broke. He's like, you know what we need? With this city, this burgeoning metropolis, this bustling urban scape needs. And people are like, no, Gluck, but we bet you have the answer. He's like, you darn right I do. It needs a building dedicated to Santa Claus. <laughs> we could call it the Santa Claus building. Well, that that's original. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, they're like, are you for real? And he's like, yes, I'm for real. Look at this face. And they're like, <laughs> you know what? We love it. Is they Santa go for Claus it. Building? Everyone's like, oh, yeah, they're all they're all jazz. Because Santa Claus at this point is becoming a cultural figure. Yeah. Up to this point, he's been St. Nick. He's been, you know, uh, jolly old St. Nick. He's been, you know, Chris Kringle. He's not all one thing. This is when he they all merge. All these various mm-hmm. Christian and Christian adjacent traditions turn into the Santa Claus we know. All right. So if you can believe it, the city of New York and its richest residents go, John Duvall, we got your back. And they give him a building. Oh, yeah. And, well, first, they give him an upgrade. They upgrade him from the back room of Henkel's Chop Shop yeah, on 36. he's still in the they Chop Shop. They get him shop. over to the Hotel Aster. And he's like, oh, this hello. is nice, right? And they're like, yeah, welcome to the good life, Vanderbilt style. And he's like, yeah. Then they go and they send him over to the Woolworth Building, which is like the tallest building in America at that time. This okay. is just before the Empire State Building was bo- uh, built. So the Astors, the Vanderbilts, they're all taking him under their very luxurious wings and saying, enjoy New York. Well, and it's a, it's a really easy charity. It's a... 
a safe charity. Uh-huh. To, yeah. Yeah. It's not going to upset anybody. They look good. They look like, oh, hey, you care about the poor tykes. Mm-hmm. Aren't you guys great? Yeah. So, you know, the key is that Gluck knows exactly what we just discussed. He knows how to make the wealthy feel special. So he's like, oh, he asked the kids to write letters of thank you. And then he presents the letters to the rich people. Like, oh, look how great the kids feel about this. Some of the really rich people, he's like, do you want to go do a tour with me and drop off the gifts from Santa? They're like, oh, I'd love to do that. guilt. Exactly. Exactly. I was like, he's so, like, he has his finger on the pulse of humanity and, like, all of our disparate emotional needs, right? Yeah. So, as I told you. He's starting to feel good about himself. So in 1915, he makes this big announcement on Christmas Day after the season's winding down. He's like, the peculiar nature of our work calls for a building of our own. And everyone's like, word, he was for real. We thought he was just like talking out the side of his mouth. He's like, no, no, I've talked to architects. And they're like, really? He's like, yes. The celebrity architect brothers, Edward and George Blum, they've agreed to build my headquarters. They're like, oh man, that's great. And he's like, yes, I'm going to have youth charities. A toy store. Uh, it'll be called the Lilliputian Bazaar. They're like, oh, I love that. They're like, yes, it'll be a resource for all the underprivileged little tykes who are in this city. You know, he's like, oh, man, you're just so great. This is, he's like, <laughs> the building will be Beau Art style. And then for everybody who doesn't know, that's like the pre-war yeah. uh, building in New York, right? He's like, I want the facade of the Santa Claus building to be covered with the images of Santa Claus and, of course, Children, and they're like, Oh, of course, children, sure, everybody sure. loves children. He's like, No, not just children, not just white kids. I want children from <laughs> all around the world, and all the high above the people of the city will be these children, and they'll be looking down, and above them will be the words Santa Claus Association carved into my white marble edifice. And they're like, Oh man, he's like, No, I'm not done. <laughs> I want a freeze of these children, a stone cut freeze, and all their multitudinous moods. They're like, multitudinous <laughs> moods? He's like, yes! I'm going to get a great artist to do it. Get me that guy, Gutzon Borglum. And everyone's like, oh, oh I know Gutzon that Borglum? Name. Yeah, right? So the guy who carved or would later carve Mount Rushmore and at this time I think is working on Stone Mountain. <laughs> so he's on. busy working on a racist mountain carving. He's like, I'll be back with you and the kids in a second. Let me go finish carving these generals from the Confederacy into the side of a mountain. Yeah. He's like, okay, well, get back to me, son. So Gluck's <laughs> like, okay, I want my Santa Claus building to be the spirit of Christmas. And everyone's like, I love this. White marble spirit of Christmas. He's like, yes, airy, well lit. Like, man, Reeks you're talking my language. Yes, <laughs> I want fine mahogany. And he's like, I want there to be a big door. And they're like, oh, of course, you got to have a big door. It's well, a big yeah. building. Big doors. Yes, <laughs> no por- doors. A no por- doors in this no building. Door, no windows. It'll be a <laughs> portal. And, in this, and there'll be a, a great entryway. And in the center of the entryway will be, what, wait for it? Nude Santa. <laughs> A giant Christmas tree (laughs) year round. Dang. So everyone's like, man, you talking crazy. I love this. (laughs) And so the press are like, oh, yes, we're writing it all up. And everyone's like, man, this is the best thing ever to happen in New York since that, that, what, the bullfight? I don't know anything about that. (laughs) So they all print up their stories and none of it is critical. They're all just like, this is a beautiful idea. The guy's just like, oh, yes. Now, mind you. The puff piece is right in itself. No, you have to understand, this is all part of that jazz age feeling that's taking hold. Like, he's... This is 1915, so we're not technically into the jazz age, but Mm -mm. that swirl is starting to take hold, and people are starting to feel the excitement, and he's ahead of the people. So he's like, you guys are going to buy to love the jazz age, so let me just lay that rap on you now. And they're like, okay. So he's like, yeah, man, the young country, we're confident. We need Santa Claus building to prove to the world who we are as a people. They're like, yeah, man, talk that mad talk. (laughs) So he's like, okay, now... This building, now write this down, newspapers. I want this to be called Santa Claus' new home. They're like, yeah, he's like a child wonderland, an all-year palace. They're like, bet, son. He's like, now, everybody, just let that mingle in your imagination. They're like, cool. They're like, one question, man. Who's going to pay for this? I want you all to think about that, too. I'll be back with an answer after this break. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. 
Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So last we left, there was big question left hovering in the air above John Duvall Gluck. And everyone was going, is that going to rain on him or is that going to break open into sunshine? He's like, <laughs> that old cloud, that don't mean nothing to me. Like, well, John, who's going to pay for this Santa Claus building you proposed? And he's yeah. like, well... Okay. Now, it may sound weird because I know everybody remembers I just had that fundraiser last week because I was in debt for three grand. You're like, how could I possibly afford this building that is apparently penciled in at $300,000? Now, I can see <laughs> the disconnect there for a lot of you, but those are just zeros. And what does a zero mean anything? It nothing. doesn't mean nothing. Zeros are nothing. So he's like, you know what? I know who can pay for this building. They're like, lay it on us, John. He's like, I got you. Mothers. They're like, mothers? <laughs> like, my mother? They're like, no, Yo no, mama. Just, just all the mamas. And he's like, really? Yeah. And I quote, we will probably begin a campaign to ask the mothers of America to contribute to its construction. And That's the, disgusting. And the press is like, That's a great idea. <laughs> So for the next 12 years, he <gasps> continues to ask for money of all the mothers and presumably fathers and rest of the families of America. And he does this. Guilt and shame. He raises money. He raises more money. He raises more money. Then he raises even no. more money. He never breaks <laughs> ground on a building. <laughs> 
<laughs> just year well, after yeah. year passes, and each Christmas season, it becomes a new tradition. There'll be the request from John Gluck. I need money for my Santa did Claus building. Did he have at the chop shop, did he have like one of those giant thermometers? Yeah, with a building fund for the church? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like a southern church. It's just stuck halfway. It's like, oh, we know how the building fund works. Mm-hmm. Oh, wink, wink. wink. <laughs> so this new uh, Christmas tradition he's created, which is give John Gluck money for the Santa Claus <laughs> building, takes hold in New York. Everyone just gets used to it. They're like, yeah, whatever. And people are like, yeah, you know, that's cool. I mean, like one day we're going to have this great building. It's, have you heard about it? It's going to have a freeze and a tree. Did he have a location scouted out? Yeah, he did. It was going to be down like near uh, where um, the train station, mm-hmm. the Grand uh, Central Station, in that same kind of complex area. Mm-hmm. He wanted to build it there because land was apparently cheap at that time there. Because I was hoping it would be like one of those law and order fake New York addresses where oh, if yeah. you look it up, it's like, it's like in the middle of the river. Yeah, it's like, bro, where is Hudson <laughs> University actually? <laughs> So Gluck, by the way, doesn't limit his fundraising to New York. Even though this building is going to be in New York, it's for the world, Elizabeth. It's for the world, right? (laughs) So he wants his Santa Claus Association to be national and eventually international. So he asks people nationally and internationally to give their money. And they're like, okay, the newspapers are with it. Like, give this man money. He is doing it for a good reason. He's like, yeah, man, I'm doing it for the kids. It's World Santa Headquarters. (laughs) So now I want, just to give you a sense when I say the newspapers are for him and they're supporting him, that just sounds like kind of crazy. You're like, why would they be? So I'm going to give you a taste of what they wrote. Mm -hmm. Ready? This one comes uh, from a newspaper of the day. Quote, where the money will come from is the simplest problem in the world. Everybody in the world, that is nearly everybody in the world, owes something to the old gentleman with the snowy beard and the capaciously filled red suit. And it is self-evident that the nearly everybody who can possibly afford it will be delighted to give something to the erection of a building in the gentleman's <laughs> honor. I love this notion of everyone in the world lives He's, just like me. And they're Christian, apparently. And if they're not, then they just don't exist. <laughs> yeah. They all love Santa, even the Buddhists. <laughs> they don't the exist. The Muslims, them too. The animists. All, <laughs> they come all around. love it. Yeah, we'll, come we'll get them. They're just Christians waiting to happen. <laughs> oh, God. So anyway, this is, by the way, this was printed by The Sun, the same paper who told Virginia, yes, there is yeah. a Santa Claus. So apparently they either are big believers in Santa or they want their readers to be big believers in well, Santa. Well, they want their readers. They need the eyeballs on the ads, right? So the readers are going to pay attention. The readers are going to eat this up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything that feels Wait, good. They're, they're kind of selling the same thing he's selling. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Really, ultimately. Enter into this picture, Big Bad Bird Kohler. Big Bad Bird Kohler. I love that name, Bird yeah. Kohler. So he's the New York Public Welfare Commissioner, and he smells a rat. I like it. This marks the beginning of the end of the Santa Claus building. Ooh. Yeah, right? Get him, bird. (laughs) Well, John Duvall Gluck is out working his long con Santa Claus Association, trying to squeeze all the money and power and prestige and clout he can out of it. He's also been working other charity angles and scams, building up a little bit of a bad name for himself. Oh. Now, he leverages, he has a database of about (laughs) 76,000 rich New Yorkers, all the wealthiest donors. This is a huge ledger. Yeah, he really does. And he's hitting them up, right? All the time, you know, the the Astros, the Vanderbilts, those names I was telling you before. But he's also doing things like taking their names and putting them on things that they don't know about and saying, like, yes, the Vanderbilts and the Astros are supporting, uh, for instance, the Defense Reports Committee or my crusade against illicit traffic in narcotics or my (laughs) serum control of cancer or how about my other vice-related charity, which is ironically in support drinking the anti-prohibition group. So he's got all these rich people's names on all these charities. They're like, they don't usually hear about it because they're kind of like Well, they got a lot of other ones going on. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true, yeah. So they're like, oh, and he, he once again, plausible deniability. He's like, who would do such a thing? Well, obviously, they see the good work we're doing here and they're trying to imitate it and they're tarring my good name with your name and such and <laughs> so weird. forth. And who wants to get lunch? So <laughs> Now, this these odd charities that he has, I think my favorite I left for the last, mm-hmm. which is is the Window Crib Society. The, the Window Crib Society. Have you ever society. seen like those pictures of a baby hanging outside of a window <gasps> yeah. in a crib and it's in, like, in a cage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's thanks to the Window Crib Society. Did he invent the Window Crib? No, he's a con man, not an inventor. <laughs> so he did nothing of the same. But he decided to create a society around yeah, it. Yeah, that's what he does. He's that's like, you know, let's get some action around this and a yeah. uh, little heat, a little let's money. Let's dangle some of them babies. Yeah, put a baby in a box. Let's all band together and make a whole society for baby dangling. <laughs> so I want to shirt the Window Crib Society with a baby in a box. Like, Let's how great would that be? That sounds like some ridiculous crime merch. It really does. So, mm-hmm. the Window Crib Society was the answer to urban overcrowding. Right? <laughs> in case you haven't heard, babies, they need sunlight, air, 
right? And they're like, oh, I want some oxygen. They're like, babies, man. <laughs> no. They're always crying for stuff. And so they're like, <laughs> they're these busy moms in the city. They're like, what can I do to give my baby some air and some sunlight and all these things he's always crying for. They're like, I know, I need a cage. A cage attached to my apartment window. That would be the answer for my little urban infant. For my busy on-the-go lifestyle. <laughs> exactly, pretty much. So the child would be left in this like chicken wire crib and, the, and then that would be balanced precariously stories up from the, the street below. And then I guess they would just let the kid in I don't know, sit out there. Drink in the sunlight, kid. You well, know, it's, it's like, like a hamster cage. And then they probably didn't change the diapers and just dripping down on the street below. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is what the baby cage looks like. Yeah. How would you describe that to somebody who's never seen that before? It does. It looks like a baby in a hamster cage that's been like, they took the, the air conditioning unit out of yes, the window yes, and exactly. then put that out there. They're like, let's put a baby conditioner out there. And it's not that big. So no. that the kid's taken up a good bit of real estate yes. in that cage. Yes. And then it's the like kid, the size of a dog crate. Well, when you said they live in this urban environment, it sounds like they're using it as like an extension. Like that's the kid's room. Pretty much. That and was, then the that kid was actually just the sales point. lives out there yeah. and it just gets too big and they have to like pry it out of the cage because the <laughs> chicken wire is imprinting on their skin. <laughs> they have little diamonds all up and down their They're arms like, and legs. Oh my gosh, little baby Jasper's that been out there for like six months. Well, no, they would so, they would and have they like, pop open the window and then he's just like he's gotten so big. Dude, the New York weather is no joke. They actually made these like covers to put over the cage. Rather than take the baby like out parrot? of the weather, they would put a cover on for the rain. Just leave it out there anyway. The oh, wind, my the goodness. storms, the baby's out there. And so be like, if his baby starts crying, just close the window a little. <laughs> I didn't really say that. <laughs> but okay, I want to tell you just something about this. Do you know who got, almost got busted for having a Window Crib Society membership? Oh, God, who? Back in 1906, when this was first becoming a popular practice, a young 21-year-old mother who was living in New York at the time was acting on the prescription of her doctor. Her doctor told her to do this, right? And he's like, look, you need to get a wooden basket, slap some chicken <laughs> wire on it, put that on a window 17 floors up. Oh that God. Put your baby in there, good to go. She's like, okay, doc, I will do that, right? So she puts her firstborn child in this window crib and goes about her day doing whatever it is you do in 1906 when you're home as a mother of a small infant. Sure. So I'm sure she's like darning socks or whatever. Butter so, churning. Butter churning, exactly. <laughs> she's like chipping ice. So the neighbors, they spy this baby in a cage like <laughs> seven stories up or whatever it was. And they're like, what the heck? And if so, you see something, say something. Exactly. They say a lot. Good. They go and they, they contact the New York Society for Prevention of Cruelty Towards Children. <laughs> and they call them the out. ASPCC. <laughs> exactly. And they're oh. like, hey, uh, we're going to need some eyes on this young mother. Mm -hmm. And so they go and the concerned neighbors uh, contact her because they won't wait for this New York Society for the prevention of cruelty to children to come out and respond because they're busy. Yeah. So they're like, all right, let's just go over and talk to her. And she is actually shocked, shocked, mind you, by the reaction of her neighbors. She's like, look, I'm just a modern mother trying to do what I've been told by my medical care provider. And they're like, okay, now you know who this mother turned out to be? Oh, God. Eleanor Roosevelt. <gasps> I was going to say that. I was going to crack wise and say that, but I did not think at all. Oh, my God. 100% true story. Eleanor Roosevelt almost got busted for putting her baby in a crib. Baby a dangler. Yeah, exactly. A little chicken wire baby dangler. Wow. My point is that... <laughs> All kinds of intelligent, reasonable people who we respect and value their opinion fall for this sort of these long cons yeah. and crazy ideas and these totally. charity scams that Gluck operates. Wow. So eventually, back to my point, all of these lies and fake charities catch up to him, the perpetual fundraising for the Santa Claus building, and he's got Berg Collar on his backside going, where are the receipts, son? And so <laughs> Berg Collar's like, hey, John Gluck, why don't you come on down to my office and we'll just have a little get-to-know-you chat, just man-to-man. -man. He's like, oh, you know, I'm busy, Santa Claus, all that seasonal <laughs> business. He's like, when you're done. Come down to my office. We'll have a chat. He's, He's like, like well, dude, it's March. I, you know, year-round business. And like, come down to my <laughs> office. So he's like, okay. He goes, comes down to his office and Bird Caller's like, look, I've heard a lot about your Santa Claus Association. You do great work, no doubt. I've heard some other things about you. And I'm starting to question some of the things I've heard. So I would like you to help me prove these accusations wrong. And he's like, what do you need from me? He's like, my man... <clears throat> I just need the receipts. Open up your books and let me see the accounting and I'll be able to tell all these sure. discreditors to your good name that they are wrong. And he's like, 
Yeah, about that. Uh, my good name and such and receipts. Hmm, yeah. So I run a charity. I think you should just trust me that I'm doing the good work. I'm doing it for the kids, man. He's like, <laughs> look, do you have the receipts? He's like, no, I don't have any receipts. I don't have, okay, I've got this book that somebody made. We'll see what's in there. And so he brings the book and he's got, and he's like, look, here's the building fund. He's like, okay, checks the receipts. He's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. He's like, where's the money? He's like, well, you know, it's been a long time and we've just, over the years, he's like, you've been raising money for 12 years. Where is it? 12 years. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, man. So he won't give me any direct answers. He's like, just show me, I want all the receipts for all your charity work. He can't find money for any of it. And None Gawk, of it? Gawk is like, look, why you got to sweat my game, son? I'm doing it for the kids. Why? Why don't be a hater? Like, look at me <laughs> over here. Do What are you doing for the kids? Why do you hate children? Yeah, like, what? I, mean, I don't see you doing anything for the kids, Mr. Bird Kohler. So Bird Kohler's like, look. The reason I'm sweating your game is I've gotten complaints in every one of the boroughs about you, and I am unfazed. I am unmoved by whatever it is you're doing right here, so you're done, son. Oof. And he contacts the postmaster general. He's like, rescind his, like, you know, official licensee, and he goes. And that's the end of the Santa Claus Association because now they will not be getting the letters, and that is right. their source of everything. So he then, you know, he's like, okay, well, uh, <laughs> About that uh, $106,000 that you say I raised, and he's like, because that's what eventually Burry Kohler discovers, the Santa Claus Association is on the hook for $106,000, which in today's money is 1.7 mil. Wow. Yeah. After 12 years, it's actually, in my opinion, not a lot of money. No, but... but it's still a lot of money back then because, you know, whatever. It was, you're able to do a lot more with it. So Yeah, but it's like... He's, go ahead. Okay. No, I just, why wouldn't you invent some expenses? Oh, yeah. Cook I'd, them books, right? dude. Yeah. Put it on a low boil. Yeah. So instead, he just used it as a personal piggy bank, and he thought Santa Claus would be the perfect con cover forever. Did he believe in Santa that Santa was going to fill up the coffers? <laughs> I'd love to believe he believed in Santa. <laughs> that would be amazing. If deep down he really believes he's real. Bird shows up. Like, he I'm puts such a bird a on boy. it. Bird's like, where's the cash? He's like, well, Santa Claus said he was going to bring it. <laughs> he promised me. Now, in, in some ways, in many ways, he basically did to, like, what the parents were doing to the kids is mm -hmm. what he did. He was using Santa for his own purposes. So he didn't really yeah. see himself as any different than them. He's like, look, we all use Santa. What's the big <laughs> deal here? Now, if you're still wondering, the Santa Claus building, did anyone ever build that? No, that's no. why you've never heard of it and never <laughs> seen a picture of it. it that, that dream died. It died with him. So there is no Santa Claus skyscraper, but... I will say this much. Bird Kohler mm -hmm. managed to keep the, the postmaster working with the Santa Claus letters. That did keep going, and that has become the, the national tradition. Cities around the country, our, every city does this. In fact, even the Department of Defense has NORAD do their Santa tracker. Oh, right, yeah. All this stuff tracks right back to John Duvall Gluck and his, like, let's give children the joy of Santa. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah, right? So his misstep has benefited with all of these overcorrections to make up for his... Yeah, generations of children have benefited from the con he wanted to pull on the children of wow. <laughs> So this, uh, by the way, all comes to a flaming head in the year 1927, for those not keeping track of the math from you know, 12 years. So 1927, that's also the year the stock market crashes. Right. So America changes irrevocably after that. There's a depression, there's a war, it goes through like Eisenhower's America and so forth, and very much changes. But Throughout all of that, there is a direct line of commodification. Santa Claus mm -hmm. stays the commodified holiday spokesperson that he was created at this time by yeah. all these various energies and efforts, right? So I find that just kind of amusing that the two things it maintained are the manipulations of children's emotions with the letters of Santa Claus <laughs> and the commodification <laughs> of Santa Claus. Like the, Those are enduring things. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, John Gluck, over time, he gets forgotten. The last time he's ever mentioned that I could find was in a Seagram's VO, the liquor ad, in 1974. Oh. There were like <laughs> eight little Christmas miracles or Christmas stories, and it was a mention of him. They didn't do the research. No. Now, if you can believe it, this dude Gluck faced no criminal charges for his decade plus of scamming New York's richest residents and powerful people. Huh. No charges. Nothing. He just goes and decides, like, you know what? Time for a career change, and he bounces out. And he and his wife live happily ever after in Miami until 1951, where he dies peacefully at the age of 73 after becoming a Florida realtor. The ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate con. Yes, a con. Yeah, yes. What's interesting is he probably cast his net so wide with all the rich folks that they weren't really losing a whole lot, and they don't want to press charges and look like a, a ding-dong That's what dum -dum. I think it is. They didn't want to get embarrassed. It's like the... Um, 
there's like a, a joke amongst journalists that about like the doctor who is like basically provides medicine for a man with small penis, knowing he won't want to sue him in public because he won't want to go, I tried to get my small penis fixed by this doctor and he cheated me because now you're immersed with a small penis who's been tricked by a doctor. And that's just two <laughs> things you don't want to admit in public. So I think it's kind of like that thinking where it's just yeah. like, look, these guys, they don't want to be embarrassed. It's like, I got conned on like me and the, then giving gifts to children. They're like, why don't you just give gifts to children? That's right. not the question I'm here to answer. <laughs> So now this uh, guy, John Gluck, as I've told you, this is pretty much his story. He provides America with a soup kitchen for the soul moment. And then that's it. He goes off to Florida and just does his thing, enjoying, I don't know, mosquitoes and sunshine and, and citrus fruit. Yeah. And now if you'd like to read more about him, though, and I do recommend that the book, The Santa Claus Man, The Rise and Fall of a Jazz Age Con Man, was written by... Alex Palmer, who brought this story to life because it was a family legend that he just decided to investigate. So you will not find much more about this guy, John Duvall Gluck, unless you read his book or check newspapers.com and read everything you can from 1913 to 1927. (laughs) You got a couple options. I recommend the book. Sounds good. Okay, Elizabeth, what's our ridiculous takeaway for this story? I think that uh, for me, the takeaway is one... Uh, again, if you spread your net wide enough with your your mm-hmm. cons, you get a little bit here, a little bit there, then people aren't going to be too bent out of shape when you've taken them for the money. But most importantly, if you're going to cook the book, <laughs> you, take, you take it in, but you got to show yourself putting it out. Like, come on. Exactly. <laughs> so disappointing. Dude, Santa diligence. would be so upset. And his father. I mean, this guy was like, I mean, the whole reason he got into this because of the custom house, which is all paperwork. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. I'm Elizabeth Dutton. I could be Zarin Burnett. Could be. Could be. You can find us online at Ridiculous Crime on both Twitter and Instagram. You got a tip for us about a ridiculous crime you'd like to hear about? We'd like to hear about it, too. You want to confess to a ridiculous crime? Hit us up. Email us at ridiculouscrime at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Yes, you're welcome. Ridiculous Crime is hosted by Elizabeth Dutton and Zarin Burnett. Produced and edited by showman for the snowman, Dave Couston. Research is by Santa Claus truther, Marissa Brown. Our theme song is by Thomas, Jessica Lee, and Travis, Mr. Claus, if you're nasty, Dutton. Executive producers are Ben, Blitzen, Bolin, and Noel. Don't call me Rudolph Brown. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.